Hello and welcome to the Tifa Football Podcast. My name's Joe. The regular podcast isn't back yet. We will be in a week or two's time. We're just sorting a few things out. But in the meantime, uh, we have a very special episode that I'm really pleased that we're able to publish. Tifa Football content editor Seb Stafford-Bloor recorded a conversation with Michael Calvin, who's an award-winning author. His previous works were called The Nowhere Men, where he revealed the extraordinary life of football scouts. After that, he wrote Living on the Volcano, talking about the pressures on football managers no Hunger in Paradise chronicled the hardships of young players striving to make it in football. And uh, yesterday, the 23rd of August, Michael published State of Play, which investigates, and I'm reading now from, from the blurb, investigates the human stories of football, from mental health to money, concussion to the Champions League, fan owners to oligarchs, women's football to World Cups. Calvin gets under the skin of the beautiful game and reveals why it's truly the game of our lives. This is based on hundreds of interviews with leading figures from around the world, from Arsene Wenger to Steven Gerrard. Calvin reveals the winners, the losers, the politics, the pleasure, the hope, and the despair of the world's most popular sport. Now, I haven't read the book myself yet, but Seb, who uh, conducted the interview, has, and he, he loves it, as you'll be able to hear from this episode. Um, as someone who hasn't read it, uh, listening to this earlier, it was brilliant. I think it was full of really interesting stories. And I think what makes it more interesting is that is you know, that... That, that Michael seems to have written this to a theme, so there's um, lots of diversity in the sorts of stories that he's talking about. So I really do hope you enjoyed today's episode. As I said, uh, the usual podcast will resume in a week or two's time. Apologies for the wait there. But thanks so much to Seb and Michael Calvin for sorting this one out. One final note before you do listen to it. The audio quality isn't superb. It was recorded down the phone. It's the only way we could make the interview happen. Uh, but you will be surprised how quickly you get used to it, okay? So stick with it for the first five minutes, and afterwards you won't even notice. Thank you so much for downloading. And we will be back with you again soon. Incidentally, if you like this episode and you want to hear more like this, do let us know. It's definitely something we can do. Um, and I think that, you know, this one in particular, it's, it's a really great episode. As I said, I'm really pleased to be able to, to publish it. So let us know if you like it and we'll, uh, we'll think about doing some more like this. Okay. Thanks very much. And here's Seb. Welcome to the TFO Football Podcast. Uh, no Alex and no Joe today, so you're stuck with me. But we do have Michael Calvin with us, and today is actually publication day for his new book, State of Play, and he is joining us now. Mike, how are you? I'm good, thanks, Seb. You well? Very well, mate. Very well. Um, so when, when I, I remember speaking to you for the first time about this book about six months ago, and you were, you were still in your writing stage, and, and you talked about Arthur Hopcroft's The Football Man. Um, for, for maybe some of the younger listeners, describe the book's impact on you. I mean, you cover it in the book, but it's such a it's such a seminal piece of work. It it, it probably deserves a, another airing. Uh, well, it's probably why I'm sat here now talking down the line to you. <laughs> um, basically, um, it was uh, it's this is almost a, it's a homage to two people. This uh, this book, in a way, it's to my dad and to Arthur Hopcraft. And they're linked in some sort of strange way. My dad was um, uh, a cable jointer for the Eastern Electricity Board. And he came back one evening uh, from having worked in an abandoned house and he had two books with him. Those two books pretty materially affected my life. Uh, I was 13 at the time. First one was a glossary of the 1945 um, campaigning parliament, you know, NHS and all that. Uh, and that sort of informed my sort of political 
outlook and and my dad's to a degree it was all about sort of benevolent socialism yeah uh but the second book was uh the football man and uh, arthur hopcraft uh for those who don't know uh, an excellent screenwriter um did john le carre uh tinker taylor soldier spy dickens um but a, a terrific journalist and uh 50 years on, I think uh, the football man is still one of the greatest, if not the greatest football book, because it's the perfect snapshot of his time. Uh, it was into uh, nine sections um, covering all aspects of the game. Um, and it basically hooked me in as a 13-year-old because there was a line at the end of the, uh, the, the introduction uh, which which said, uh, I am a reporter uh, trying to get to the heart of what football is. And that had sort of a really inspirational effect on, on me. And, and uh, essentially, it was why I wanted to get into football writing. Jacked in my levels when I was 16, joined a local paper, uh, and away we go. Um, so uh, it's quite a personal book. Um, I'm not impudent enough to think that this will be... Uh, read in another 50 years in the way that Cockcraft is read today. But um, I wanted to try and provide the snapshot of 2018, football in 2018, but humanising the issues. So expressing the issues that the game faces and is going through at the moment, but emphasising and articulating those issues through the eyes and experiences of the people who are actually engaging them. So that, that takes us right across the spectrum from... Uh, concussion, mental health, to homophobia, racism, uh, angry Britain, Brexit Britain, the intolerance that's become institutionalised in football. Very, very broad, but looking at it in four sections, which essentially is the players, the managers and coaches, the clubs, and then the people. And so I hope I've given a, uh, a pretty sort of encyclopedia it's encyclopedic look at the game as it is um and i i would hope that the reader is reminded that this is a game of flesh and blood you know what one of, one of the interesting things about hopcroft i always found and, and i and i think this is probably why um the football man enjoys is that he was quite prophetic in a lot of ways about the direction the game was heading yeah. in and what it would be decades on from you know, he wrote The Football Man in 1968. So, you know, he, he was predicting things that would happen 20, 20, 30, 40 years in advance. Well, he predicted the Premier League. He, he did indeed. He did. And, and, and also seemingly the drift away from, from the average fan. One of the things uh, that seems to have changed, I mean, I remember reading it and I remember as someone who's just starting out being almost resentful of his ability to actually investigate the game. When you set out to do this 50 years later... Um, how how change was it in terms of, I suppose, football's willingness to be investigated? <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it, it's a complete... If you, if you look at it, football, you know, it's a bit of a cliche, but it does reflect society. Um, you know, there is that intolerance that I spoke of. There yeah. is the uh, over-commercialisation and over-protection of the people within the game. The lack of... Um, willingness to be accountable. We see that both in football and in politics. You know, over the last six months, if yeah, you like. yeah. Uh, so it's a very, it's a very broad look. I think what Hopcroft was, 
a man of his time and he captured that time perfectly and with all its imperfections. So the one thing that, that struck me, uh, there were only two references to females in that entire book. Mm. Uh, one to um, uh, Bobby Charlton's mother and the other to George Best's landlady. Now, at that time in 1968, women's football was still banned. It was banned until 1971 by the FA. Now, I have tried to look at uh, the role of, of, of women in modern football, and the one thing that struck me immediately was they, uh, someone like Emma Hayes, em embodies the emotionally in, the emotional intelligence of modern management. You know, it, the the book. Uh, has as uh, almost like a standard, there's a quote at the start of every uh, chapter. And the one that I've done with, with Emma and looked at her role and her philosophies and the game in general is you know, she speaks about her priority being she wants to make any guy who works with her or for her, first of all, a better husband, a better person. Uh, and, you know, she's seen up, she sees up and exposes the sort of caveman mentality of, of the modern uh, game, the, the dressing room culture. But also then you can take that into other areas of the book where you're looking at players who are uh, emotionally stunted. They're in an environment where it is uh, deemed to be um, uh, a weakness if you are... Um, Either admitting to vulnerability yeah. or any form of insecurity, or you're not, you're, or, the, or there's a degree of individuality. Um, yet we have um, there's a chapter with a guy called Drew Broughton, who's a 22 club a journeyman. If that's that's probably too disrespectful a phrase, but you know he's he's sitting across the desk in his new role as a performance coach with young young players who are um, essentially, well, one in particular is an under-21 international, who, if you look at his social media profile, is uh, the embodiment of bling. Yeah. He has the bling, he has the uh, social pretensions, he has that celebrity status, he has the money, but he hasn't got self-belief and he hasn't got self-worth. So he will sit in his bedroom each night going through uh, YouTube clips of Ronaldinho trying to work out how great he was uh, and cr end up crying himself to sleep because he is suffering from that insecurity which is the bedrock of the game. So, you know, the, the point, the, the, the sort of almost narrower point that, um, you know, someone like Emma makes uh, is actually a very applicable right across the board. Do you think, I mean, I, you are first and foremost a football fan, right? Is writing a book like this a depressing exercise, given the state of the game now? Because you talked about sort of the, I suppose, almost the, the mental psychosis that football can breed. You've also covered this in, in um, No Hunger in Paradise, um, which is another outstanding book, but also well-focused towards the kind of the, um, the, 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 lack of, the lack of care for people that don't perhaps get the career that they've envisaged for themselves. If you look at the entire picture now and you look at sort of the human cost that sometimes the game is leaving behind or that it demands from the people within it. Is that a, what kind of effect does that have on you as someone that's lived with the game for so long? It makes me sad, makes me angry, makes me determined to uh, show the game in its true light. Um, 
I'm, I'm very pleased that most of the books, in fact, all of the football books, have been read very widely mm. within the game. And, um, you know, the modern mania for news management controlling the agenda and the narrative, I, I think there's something about a book which engenders respect. Now, I'm not saying that I deserve respect, but certainly people within the game see and they look at uh, my stuff and they see authenticity they see a, a world that they they visualize warts and all and it, it's a difficult balance to strike i know uh, i had a lot of feedback from no hunger in paradise which yeah. for the uninitiated looked at uh youth football and uh almost the selling uh, of the dream and the commoditization of childhood um, and people said, well, it was too negative. Well, actually, it's a pretty negative area. Yeah. But I, try, but I tried whenever I could to stress that there are people working out there uh, doing fantastic work in, in normally deprived communities. So, uh, but I do feel that it's, as a, as a writer, it's my privilege to be able to take a, a very broad look at a sport that I've probably covered for 30-odd years at the highest level. Um without ever losing one my respect to the people who do it because you know basically at heart i'm still the um you know 15 year old hacker of a center half you know it was rejected by a sunday league team um but i i think also the thing about is is that i've never lost my you know my passion i in essence i don't you know, sport is my platform, football, and I've done other books in other areas. But that is my platform, um, but people are my passion. And I think, you know, going back to your question, football is a people business, but it treats people appallingly. Yeah. And, you know, what, what, are, what are the consequences of that? And I think that's – but I think also is why do people continue, you know, against hope? And, you know, hope, hope over expectation. Why do people give of themselves? But what are the good things that are out there within our modern game? You know, there are a litany of things that are wrong with the game. It will become much more commercialized, much more elitist, much more commercially cynical. But there are still stories which emphasize football's importance in drawing a line almost like uh, or, or, or maintaining that umbilical cord between a community and its football club. And I think we are going to go into an age where more and more we're going to have, I think we're going to have a pan, a pan sort of global league where a Barcelona or a Manchester United will, will not play the majority of their games at the Camp, Camp Nou or at um, Old Trafford. There will be, you know, they'll have two games in, in Malaysia or you know, east and west coast of the States or wherever. So they will become global brands and global commodities. In that environment, I think what we've got to look at is the value of some of the clubs. There's a chapter I've done called Dreamers, uh, which is basically around three football clubs, Accrington Stanley, Erith Town and Dunstable Town. Accrington Stanley was one of the most enjoyable pieces to write because here is a, a small club, lowest budget in the league. They go up as champions from League Two last last summer or this summer. Um, 
and you look at what it means to the individuals concerned. So on the night they go up, um, it was karmic. Billy <laughs> Key, their, 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 their star striker, been suffering very publicly from mental health issues, scores the, the goals. Um, Andy Holt, who is the owner, local businessman, made good, but very down-to-earth guy. I, I paint the picture of him five minutes after relegation, uh, sorry, uh, promotion uh, is achieved. And he's sitting at the back of the main stand with his mate. Uh, and that main stand is very shallow. It's sort of eight or nine seats, uh, rows of seats max. And there's a, there's a guy of about 40 who forces his way through the scrum. Oh, literally just starts dancing around the concourse. And he gets the, gets to uh, where Andy is having this pint with his mate. And he just says, Andy, Andy, just wanted to say thank you. And he couldn't get any more words out. Tears streaming down his face. And he was almost ashamed of his own audacity. And he sort of melted back into the crowd. That is what football can do to you. And I think that is where hopefully people can read my book. And if they are becoming inured to the cynicism of the game, they can still be reminded that actually, you know, romance isn't entirely dead. I, it's interesting because I, I remember after I read that passage, I, I started following Andy Hall on Twitter, and um, Accrington at the moment are they're, they're trying to build a new stand, and you see his Twitter account is very honest. I mean, he's he's um, he certainly doesn't seem afraid to uh, to take issue with some of the um, the problems in the game, some of the problems in the football league, and you can actually see the kind of the day to day mechanics of life at that level of the game, which is so seems so far removed now from the International Champions Cup and the La Liga deciding to play games in America to boost their audience. And it just it's 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 actually um it's almost cathartic to to read that stuff because it, it, it's very easy now to be to 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 believe that that side of the game has been taken away for good. Um Yeah I, it, it is interesting. So, sorry Seb. No go on Mike. It, it, it is interesting that I was doing a radio interview uh, early in the week, and uh, uh, I was telling the story of Deli Ali um, yeah. being at the deathbed of, of, of um, a wonderful man called Simon Edwards, who helped him as a behavioural specialist from Harley Street, and he helped Delhi in terms of helping him sleep because of all the attendant stresses. And uh, you know, the story here is. Um, Simon helped me a lot on, on No Hunger in Paradise. He spent a, a day around my house, um, basically just give me an insight into the psyche of young people and young footballers. And wonderful man, very warm and engaging. Now, his secret was that three and a half years previously, he'd been uh, diagnosed with terminal cancer. Mm. The, prog- the prognosis was that he would live for a year. Well, he, he lasted um, you know, three and a half years, as I said, uh, until um, uh, early January this year, where Carl Robinson, uh, the, the manager, got a call from him saying, look, you know, I know I haven't told you this, but I've got about 10 days to couple of weeks left. Uh, so Carl got Delhi and he got uh, Benicophobe and they went to the hospice. And uh, Simon's last couple of days uh, were illuminated by, you know, this young pro who has a, you know, let's face it, a pretty fragile sort of public image and has made mistakes in public because he has to grow up in public. Uh, and there's this you know, young man with his life ahead of him 
sort of laughing and, 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 you know, sharing his ambitions and, you know, having football stories. One of the MK Dons players, when Simon worked there, um, insisted that Simon speak to him through his football boot because his football boot was his method of communication with the world. Uh, you know, surreal stuff like that. Um, and so I, I told that story and, and the radio interviewer said, well, you know, we'll never see that in the, in the media, will we? We'll never see that in the press because it's too good a story. And, uh, you know, I'm not having a bitch at the, at the, at the press at all uh, because I think it is changing and there's some fantastic emotionally intelligent writers out there uh, who, are, who are producing excellent stuff on a daily basis. But I got his point that we are in this world where it seemed it's deemed fashionable to be um, sarky. It's deemed fashionable to you know have a dig when you've got the chance. Yeah. Actually, there's some good people out there, and I learned more about Delhi in that in that sort of vignette. Because we then went on to speak about, I, I spoke to him, um, I, I've known him since he was a, a kid. I was literally, I was speaking to Carl Robinson. Uh, this is and, another lovely story, actually. This, this, yeah. yeah. Uh, I was speaking to him, I was th- talking to him, uh, uh, I was having a cup of tea with him, you know, the, the usual football plas- you know, plastic um, cup. <laughs> and um, at the training ground, and Delhi came over and said, uh, you know, Gaffer, do I have to go um, do my badges? I mean, all the scholars, and he was a scholar at the time, have to do their level two coaching badge in the in the dome next door. And, he, and Carl just said, "No, son." He said, "You're here now. This is your job." And uh, so I followed him from there. I saw him play in one of the early games. I can remember. I was I was actually um, researching uh, early stages of the manager's book uh, with. Um, A.D. Boothroyd, who was then the, the Northampton manager. So I was in his dressing room at halftime well, and, and on the bench during the game. And they were playing Milton Keynes in a, uh, a League Cup tie on a dog rough Tuesday night. And this League Two team, Northampton, were trying to kick this kid, Deli Alley, over the stand and missing. And he was literally laughing at them. And I thought, wow, we've got something special here. Then he did some stuff in training, which was just off the planet. And so I'm now seeing him at 22 talking in, uh, we actually met at an England um, get together and talking really honestly and vividly about his life or his, his, you know, his role and, 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 and his trade, because he's basically saying, look, Mike, football, playing football is the easy bit. It's fun. You know, you, You've got to condition yourself, even though you're playing in the Premier League and you know millions of people are watching you all around the world. Just remember, it's fun. Now, that's much more difficult than it seems. But he's also saying, look, I'm I'm 21, 22. I make mistakes. Um, But what struck me was here's a guy, and it took me ages to get to him, and I know him pretty well, because barriers are formed around these young players these days. Because they're commodities, you've got the the boy in the middle and then you've got the club creating a wall around you. You've got the sponsors, you've got the PR, you've got the agents. And before you know that that the guy himself, the young man who's got the talent, he is simultaneously overexposed because of the way modern football is, but completely isolated because of all these people being around him. And he he can't have the sort of 
you know, he, he, he can't open the curtains and the light comes through and that light is the light of reality and everyday existence. Yeah. So, it, you know, we, we ask a lot of our footballers and this is where I think socially, uh, and I mentioned it at the end of the book, but actually it's a, it's a theme through running through the book that, you know, football uh, is to, to actually make the most of itself needs people with sufficient almost moral courage like a Gareth Southgate to come out and say, be yourselves. This is my, my squad is a representation of modern society, multicultural, uh, not perfect. So someone like Danny Rose can come out and talk eloquently and really effectively about critical issues like racism, mm -hmm. like uh, uh, gun crime. Now I've, been around England teams for, for too many years and you know I'm basically a veteran of, of camp paranoia. There is no way on earth that, that Danny Rose or Danny Rose's equivalent would have been able to come out with that eloquence and that reality because he would have been protected in the past and this is where I think you know, you know I, I basically butcher the FA on a fairly regular basis but this is where they deserve fantastic credit for understanding that to actually recreate that emotional bond between a team and its public, you need to open up that team and you need to have the courage to say, right, get out there and be yourselves, chaps. And I think that's where the FA and Gareth Southgate have have proved that there is a real there is a real, if you look across business, you know, uh, coaches are getting younger in in in, in sport in North America. Uh, we look at baseball. You've got guys there who, um, AJ Hinch, who's the um, manager of the reigning World Series champions, the Houston Astros, he's a major in psychology from Stanford. Mm. You've got guys from business backgrounds. That's what we need in football is to have people with world vision or, or you know, real world vision rather than the, you know, I, I scuffled around, did 462 appearances, and then my mate got me a job, and uh, away we go, and nothing changes. That's where someone like Southgate, I think, is the exemplar of modern management. And if you're looking for a contrast, let's look at Jose Mourinho, who comes from that old command and control mentality, and his limitations are ex are being exposed as we speak, aren't they, Seb? Where you know, if you're a if you're a player, and you're playing for someone, whose whose reaction to a teammate staying with his partner after childbirth is to find that player. Yeah. Well, what sort of respect are you going to have for that manager? You're not going to play for him, and then you put that into the the macro picture of Manchester United. Pogba will always uh, outweigh the manager in, in in importance because of his social. I mean, social media penetration you know his his figures are much more important to manchester united than than the ones in the in the football league or in sorry in the premier league table you've got um uh, a chief executive in in east uh, in ed woodward who quite rightly is criticized but he's bomb proof because the share price is at a record level that is the embodiment of the modern football club because it's not a football club anymore manchester united and other clubs arsenal going under 100% control from Stan Kroenke, for instance. They're not football clubs anymore, as you and I know, because they are global institutions. So, for instance, if you take Manchester United as an example, there is the football arm of that 
of that institution. And it's based at Old Trafford at Carrington. And it's tradition and it's statues in front of the, of the big stadium, in front of the megastore. The megastore is the clue because the real power at that football club is actually resides in Mayfair in their commercial offices where they're busy selling tractors to Omsk and Colt and you know, Newcastle, New, New South Wales. And so, potato snacks from Mexico as well, I think. It's somewhere in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it's the world. You know, and, and, and they're not, you know, I'm not having, just having a go at Mexico. Well, uh, Liverpool signed a denim partnership yesterday. Well, you just took yeah. the words out of my mouth yeah, there. No, so, there you because, go. And that actually made me laugh. I thought, what? Yeah, um, well, actually, we'll broaden it even further. I mean, I, I would say that, um, you know, one of the primary reasons for Tottenham Stadium delay is because of the, the necessity of, or their perceived necessity of the, the NFL tie-up. Um, it, yeah. It's a mixed-up world in terms of its, uh, its objectives and its loyalty to the game itself. Yeah, and, and you know, there is, a, there is a football club with you know, a massive tradition, mm-hmm. But essentially, it's the arm of a an investment company based in the Bahamas, I think. Yeah. Um, and so, in Daniel Levy, you know, essentially, what you've got is, you know, someone whose whose principal loyalty is not not to a football club. His principal loyalty is to the brand and to the investment. And that's where we are going in the Premier League, where, you know, the fans and, and you look at the Tottenham fan base. They're brilliantly organised. Um, you know, the supporters' trust is very proactive, very effective. Well, up, effective up to a point, Lord Copper, because essentially, you know, they are they're part of the goods and chattels of, of modern football. What I find intriguing, Seb, I'd be interested to see what you think, is that I can see a gradual migration away from the commercially driven ignorance and arrogance of the Premier League to smaller clubs, which are more of the heartbeat of their community. And it might even be in non-league. You know, I, the, the, book, the book starts in, in, uh, in Jeff Astle's living room uh, and it ends um, at Bath City, deserted ground, Twerton Park. And I was sitting there, I was standing there, Went up to the main stand um, with um, uh, the, the general manager, and she said, "We looked out onto the pitch, and the pitch was rutted and worn after a long season. And uh, we looked to the right, and there's this very sort of steep bank, a uh, very very sort of short but steep bank uh, where there is a um, a net got, uh, to prevent footballs being kicked out of the ground." Mm-hmm. And we just looked, we just stood there and looked at the ground. And she turned to me and said, "It's beautiful, isn't it?" Yeah. And I said, "Yeah, it is." It, it, and so it's it's weird, you know, if a if a deserted football ground can have that effect on you, because here's a small club in a city that doesn't like it because there's rugby. Uh, it's, it's, it's obsessed by rugby. It's my, um, I mean, it's it's my hometown, Mike, and it's very interesting. Oh, really? Yeah, I, I um, so I, I live about twenty minutes away from Twerton Park, and um, the the contrast is amazing because obviously uh, the recreation ground, which is where the rugby team play, is the epicenter of the town. It's really it's something you can't visit Bath without noticing or walking past or walking around. And Twerton Park, it's a bus ride away through an area of the city which. You know, I, I dare say a lot of residents have never actually been to. Um, and it's, yeah, it, it's it's quite a jarring contrast if you're a football fan. Um, 
and it's uh, you know a, a Dulwich Hamlet played here on Saturday, and I'm, I'm sure they were able to come in and add a bath without even entering the city. That's how detached it is from the populace, really. Um, yeah. It's very yeah. very sad. Yeah, but but again, there's a club which which matters a lot to a very small number of people. Yeah, but that doesn't that doesn't um, detract from its value and its authenticity. And I think I think that's where. I think, you know, it's, it's a bit like the Cheers bar, isn't it? You know, you want to go in there because you want to belong. Um, and uh, I can see more and more people, uh, you know, becoming af- affected just by the simplicity of, of, of the experience and also the way that you can actually contribute. Because, um, you know, as I say, one of my, almost my favourite chapters in the book was, was doing this chapter called Dreamers where I did Accrington. Yeah. Um, Eric Town was a... A friend of mine who he texted me in May of last year saying, I've, I've got a football club. Uh, I think I need my head tested. He told me what he got and what he bought. I, I agreed with him because he had no team, he had no ground, uh, he had no fans. And I said, well, what have you got then? He said, well, I've got a manager, but I'm just about to sack him. Um, so uh, he started from scratch and I, I went to one of his early games. They had an attendance of 11 in one of his early games and uh, six of those were referee assessors um, <laughs> judging the performance of the official on the night uh, and but there was something I, I saw him at the end of the season as well but, and it was it became a little hub you know and there were only you know crowds went up to about 90 or 110 or something like that and he's now moved that club back into Erith it's wonderful um and, and, and equally, there's another story of, of Dunstable Town where um, a guy that I know is a really well-respected youth coach and scout, Tony McCall, um, took over as manager of Dunstable Town in the then Southern Premier League, so sort of just below the conference. And uh, they literally had no money, literally no money. Um, they had a whip round for a ball, which was 32 quid. Um, and so the players weren't being paid. Tony wasn't being paid, neither was his assistants. And, you know, it was obvious. They were playing at a level where Hereford were playing. And Hereford had a playing budget of 10 grand a week. And uh, it is said that the manager at the time was on 70,000 a year. Um, Complete, complete, um, you know, uh, they're completely out of their depth. Uh, But they took relegation down to the last game of the season. And... You know, let's say there were some strange results went on. Um, and it was really, really uh, sad to see a season in which the, I told the story basically through the eyes of three games. The first game was, was you know, freezing February night. They played away at Merthyr Town, Merthyr Tidville in, in Wales. Uh, strangely, they were leading at half-time, but they lost in the end. Uh, they went there on a minibus. Uh, didn't they? They borrowed the minibus from a school, didn't they? They, they did. Yeah. Yes, yeah. <laughs> um, Our plastic containers um, yeah, in a Starbucks car park. Um, it was just, you know, remarkable that they could even walk up right when they got to the other end. But when they got back to Dunstable, it was three in the morning. It was freezing. One of the players had to break into Tony McCall's car and kick the door open from the inside so that he could get in and get home at four o'clock. By that time, he is so wired from all the red bull he's been drinking to stay awake driving the minibus on the way home. Yeah, he basically he doesn't really sleep, and he and he turns up um, 
and basically gives the minibus back to the school in the morning. You know, I've been in bed for like two hours. And I'm just saying, why do you do it? And he said, well, I look at these kids and they dream and they still dream. And I, 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 I did a sort of a, uh, a match with him on the dress, in the dressing room and on, on the bench with him. And um, he said, we've got a chance today. And they had a goalkeeper. It was his ninth goalkeeper of the season. And Paul Ladd, his shorts was a little bit too big for him. He'd come on loan from Stevenage and like eighteen year old lad, and he was bricking it basically. Yeah, yeah. So Tony Tony had to say to his captain, who you know was all of twenty two, uh, just look after him because he's absolutely terrified. Unfortunately, you know, he threw a couple in quite early, the goalie, who actually but he stayed at the club and actually did brilliantly season went on. Uh they were four 0 down at half time and Tony, you know, wasn't quite in tea cup throwing mood but you know to try and set the picture is a non-league dressing room and there is one course of breeze block between him in their dressing room and the away dressing room they could hear the other team laughing so tony goes into this sort of you know probably manufactured rage and he's saying look you know they're in there and they're taking the piss out of you they're talking about which girl they're going to pull tonight how many pints they're going to have and they're just laughing at you. What are you going to do? And it, there was a sort of, you know, he was conforming to the managerial standard. I've got to shout a bit at these guys. But there was a, there was that sort of, I don't know, the tenderness of the, uh, of the slightly disappointed father about him. It was like, oh God, guys, you know, do you want to get, do you, do you want to get a, uh, yeah. a career in this game? Now, remarkably, and I had, you know, in terms of results, they didn't do very well, and they were relegated in the last day of the season. But a couple of those kids are now have now got pro contracts. One one kid's playing in in Ireland. Uh, another kid's um, uh, a right back called Peter Chioso is playing at uh, Hartlepool United. So, and he's playing in the first team. So, you know, out of all that, two kids have got a career of sorts, and you know the dream is alive and i i found that really enlightening and i hope the readers will actually find that enlightening you know there's a lot of dark i go to a lot of dark places in this book but there are shards of light as well so you know i, I would hope that people um you know relate to the humanity of the book which you know is what i've always tried to do no well i i say so you absolutely succeeded i think probably for me anyway um maybe the darkest part of the book is is probably the very first chapter in a way um mm -hmm. obviously jeff Assel's death still um hangs over the english game um and to to to, to learn the circumstance of his passing where it's a it's a very jarring way to begin a book um and as you mentioned earlier you you actually spent some time with dawn Astle, his, his daughter um mm -hmm. you explain i mean it <laughs> I, I don't know how that would feel um, because obviously sort of the impact of his death, I personally don't feel is still really taken seriously enough. Um, some of the statistics you reveal in that chapter about just how prevalent um, post-concussion syndrome as a result of heading a football is, they are, there's no other word for it. They're, they're frightening. Um, you'll talk about that a little bit more. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was a, you know, a uniquely emotional experience because um, I knew of Dawn's work, but I didn't know her. And, you know, when I was talking to her before seeing her, I said, look, 
I just want to do your dad justice, and I hope I have. Um, because, and it, it goes back to what we talked about earlier, really, Seb, where uh, football being almost like this uh, emotional lightning rod, uh, where, you know, Jeff Astle, for those of, uh, you know, our younger listeners who wouldn't know, um, I picked him also because he was essentially one of the men of 1968. He scored the winning goal in the FA Cup mm-hmm. final for West Bromwich Albion. That was then the, that created the legend. And he was known simply as the king. And, you know, in modern terms, if he was uh, today, he would be hugely fated globally. He would be a multimillionaire. At that stage in 68, um, he was uh, living in a club semi-detached. They used an old goalpost to hold the washing line up in the back garden. Uh, and he didn't have the material benefits that modern players have, but what he had was the warmth of a community um, and the respect of a community. You know, they called him the king, as I said, but it was it was a much more you know, deep-rooted relationship. You know, when his um, coffin was carried into the, the church, people were standing on... Um, the walls of the church, uh, just to touch the coffin, uh, in that sort of simple, almost like genuflection towards one of us. And um, 59, when he died, um, his brain uh, was, uh, there was a post-mortem eventually carried out in his brain by Dr. Willie Stewart, who's a, um, uh, a neurospecialist from Scotland. And, and he said that, that this was the brain of a 90, uh, someone between 85 and 92 or something like that, right. certainly the early 90s. He was 59 when he died. He was 54 when he was first diagnosed with um, Alzheimer's. Now, it took great moral courage, and it was a really emotional experience. We were both, To be honest, both of us were in tears in various stages. To actually be in the the house and sit in that in the same seat as the man and you look up uh, in this this sort of low ceiling lounge and there's a huge photograph of him having scored that goal at Wembley uh so you're you know you're sensing the the presence his presence anyway and then his daughter is telling you but this this is how my dad died and this is what keeps me going you know he he choked to death as she said he, he, he said every time she said every time I get down in this fight I remember that I saw my dad choke, choke to death on his own sick in the front garden. And that's why I give myself a kick up the backside and I keep going. She is one of the great heroines of modern football and there will be future generations will be in, in her debt because um, she, uh, there are elements I think of almost sort of, you know, uh, a Hillsborough experience here where uh, when at the inquest, in 2002, um, yeah, basically the, the the coroner said that he was that Jeff Astor was killed by an industrial disease, i.e., heading footballs. Um, yet it took 12 years and many many um, broken promises and much prevarication before the FA and the PFA got around to actually acknowledging uh, the importance of the issue. 
and um, instituting research, which should have been done a decade earlier. We see in North American football, sorry, in in the NFL, where, uh, you know, there's a huge class action suit um, been settled. Uh, American football has been, uh, I think, will become changed fundamentally by by that. I see see the same thing happening in football. But the, the issue with football is that this is the time bomb because um, during the course of the afternoon, um, Dawn, who was a um, former police officer, so she's got a sort of a uh, an inquisitive mind, let's put it like that. But see, she, she, she showed me a plastic-backed, uh, almost like a school exercise book, and uh, there were about 400 names in there, and they were all of footballers or former footballers who'd either... Uh, died or in terminal stages of um, Alzheimer's or uh, dementia. Now, there were entire teams in that book, you know, five teammates from the same era, from the same year. Uh, you know, you look around and, you know, she get, she told stories of uh, there was a, a very small care home in Bristol and that had 10 former footballers uh, as, as uh, patients. So there's a there's a hidden epi- epidemic out there, and uh, you know Aaron Shearer did a very good documentary highlighting the issue, and he was he was you know visibly moved by it, and you know there is there are moves now to you know establish uh, a brain bank in the way that the NFL are establishing one you know, with former footballers donating their brain uh, for research. Now, what we need is some form of official of the issue, you know, the, the extent of the problem that that Dawn has been highlighting. You know modern football as well as I do that it's a, a risk averse culture, and essentially modern football doesn't want to actually live up to its responsibilities in this area, as far as I can see. I think because it's worried that down the line there's going to be the sort of class action suit that happened in uh, in in the NFL. So how will football change it? Because I think it has to change. If you think of it, our laws were brought up in uh, were drawn up in what eighteen sixty odd, whatever yeah. it was. Yeah, exactly. uh, completely different times. You know, the, <laughs> this wasn't a, uh, a risk assessment culture. Let's put it like that. Uh, you look at the states; it's now I think it's under fourteen. Uh, you know, boys under fourteen or girls as well. Um, you know, cannot head the ball. Uh, there's a move over here for it to be under ten. Uh, I think that's part of the basic duty of care that probably that's going to have to come in so the the game that that you grew up with and i grew up with seb is going to change because part of the attraction of those games was the big sort of duncan ferguson guy burrow you know burrowing his way into an area getting up and just you know getting the the the, the neck muscles tensed bang the header into the, into the back of the neck from the far post or wherever that could be a museum piece in 10 years time. I don't know. Will it, will the game lose something? Perhaps it will. Um, but I think, uh, you know, I think we would be, you know, we, we cannot afford the luxury of saying, well, I really enjoy watching that. I think we're living in an age where probably football will change. People, people like a bit of 
thud and blunder and blood and thunder, don't they? They they like the UFC, which you know sports yeah. like the UFC. Well, which you know, frankly, I can't watch. But um, no, you know, there is. But, but well, I suppose what I'm saying in, in in the round of this is that, and this is where, in in a strange way, I hope state of play will will have an impact in terms of being a record of what the game is now. So I think the game will actually change quite significantly in the next generation, basically. I think um, I think why that first chapter is so effective is because in the last couple of years we, we, we've seen instances of, of ex-professionals who are who are suffering from dementia, and there are first-hand accounts, maybe not as graphic and, and disturbing as the one that you provided here, but of you know not not just sort of journeyman players, but actual stars of the game who deserve their place in history and deserve to be treated with a, with a certain respect who having played for very large clubs who are now very affluent are almost cut adrift and I I, I find that not just wrong I, I find it incredibly distasteful and I find it almost a, a symptom of what the game is in this kind of well it's not really our problem and you, you mentioned a couple of minutes ago you, you talked about responsibility um, the responsibility football has to to these men but also to its public and it, it just it's something that, um, given what most of us think about that and, and, and how, how uh, broad that distance now is, it's actually reassuring to, to, to restart play and, and hear these kind of, um, unfortunately some of them are under you know, um, difficult circumstances, but, but tales which are actually quite inspiring and reassuring. Is, is definitely the word. I, I, I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it. And I, more than that, I mean, it's, it's not just entertainment. I, I think it's a very important book. I mean, there's a lot of people out there who's enthusiasm for the game certainly enthusiasm for you know uh, their club perhaps is, is wavering i think this is uh is a very important book to read um well thanks that's very nice of you to say so thank you no that's it's a real pleasure to have you on mike um anybody who prefers uh to read rather than listen we've got a, a, a review on the site um under features on uh, com. but mike thank you very very much for joining us and, and best of luck with the book thanks Seb. it's been a pleasure mate